Welcome to Mostly Books Meets, the weekly podcast for the incurably bookish. We will be talking to authors and creatives from across the world of publishing and discussing the books they have loved. Looking for a recommendation? Then look no further. Head to your favourite cosy spot and let us pick out your next favourite book. This week on Mostly Books Meets, we're welcoming legendary author Ellie Griffiths. In 2009, she released The Crossing Places and introduced the world to the wonderful Dr. Ruth Galloway, who over several books has garnered a loyal cohort of fans from across the world. Now many mysteries later, Ruth's story is coming to an end with the release of The Last Remains in January of this year. Eddie has also penned the Brighton Mysteries series, as well as the children's A Girl Called Justice series. One thing we can be sure of is there is always another great Griffiths story on the horizon. Ellie, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thanks for having me. Our absolute pleasure. Now, Ellie, for you, you're obviously a um, a seasoned writer. You've had great books released out there. Do you, when you get to the end of a series, do you have a sort of a, a sense of loss or is it quite nice to kind of close a door on one series and kind of look to, towards the future? Well, you know, um, the Ruth series is really the only one I've ever actually properly ended. So I've said that mm. the last book, the one that's just come out in February, The Last Remains, is the last for now. I've let myself have a little bit of a wriggle room. <laughs> but I've said, it's, I've said it's the last for now. Um, and actually, mm. that did feel quite good because I could plan that, that last book mm. and, and bring in all the themes that I wanted to bring in and tie up a few loose ends, which were there from the whole series, actually. So I went sort of right back really to the beginning and tried to tie up all the loose ends. So actually that was great. It felt very good to do that and to be in control of that. But having said that, after I finished, I did feel quite a sense of loss. Yes, and I, I really mm. do miss Ruth. I think it's because I'm not thinking about starting the next one right now. I'd be thinking about, you know, the next one. So I think it's quite good for us both to have a break from each other. But yeah, there, there is, there's both kind of pleasure and a bit of loss, yeah. Yes, and I, I like that as well. It's, you know, good to give yourself that wriggle room as well. Because, of course, uh, you know, I imagine you get to know these characters. You know, you've been with them for such a long time. And to sort of say, oh, well, that's it for definite must be quite hard because you, who knows in sort of, you know, 10 years time or wherever, you could find yourself wanting to kind of bring Ruth out, out again. Yeah. Yeah, and especially with such a, as you say, with such a big cast of characters, because there are various paths I could take. You know, Ruth has an 11-year-old mm. daughter. Well, you know, maybe I wait till she's a teenager. Maybe I wait till she's grown up, you know, yes, and, yeah. and sort of uh, focus on her or focus on some of the other characters. So there are options I could take. And I have to say, without giving too much away, I have left some of them open for myself. <laughs> Not, yes, yeah. Don't want to tie everything up to the point where, you know, you're left with no sort of strings to follow if... um if uh... Yeah, yes, exactly, exactly. I, I've got a friend who, who wrote a really good book, but he said, I really regret it because I made him uh, an orphan and he has no friends. So where do I, <laughs> where do I go with, with the next one? Whereas I have provided Ruth with quite a few family members and friends. So oh, there good. are many directions I could go. <laughs> That's a good note for um, yes, poten yes. potential authors out there listening to this. Is uh, yes, don't orphan your character if you yes. want potential uh, spin-off. Don't options. make them too much of a loner. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We like an interesting loner, but 
give them some connections that um, you can work off. Now, on Mostly Books Meets, what we love to do is uh, talk to people about books. Mostly Books is, of course, a small independent bookshop nestled in the small town of Abingdon in Oxfordshire. And we kind of like to turn our guests into booksellers for the day during the interview. And we always start with childhood books. And if I was walking into a bookshop and you were there, Ellie, and I was asking for a um, a book recommendation uh, for a child, what would you be putting off the shelf for me? Okay, I might say to you, imagine if you woke up one morning and you could fly. And at first you just think you can fly a little bit, but then you realise you can you can go right up in the air and you can whoosh along. In fact, you call it whooshing. And all the adults are asleep, all the people in charge are asleep. So you can fly to London and you can go to number 10 Downing Street and you can fly around there. And then imagine that a star comes down from the sky and invites you to go and visit him in space. And then imagine that you're a dog. And that's the book that I might take down from the shelf for you. It's The Starlight Barking by Dodie Smith, which was one of my favorite books as a child. It's kind of a sequel to 101 Dalmatians. Uh, which is is so well known and of course so wonderful and magical. But I kind of like Starlight Barking best. It's a strange old book and it's full of whooshing flying dogs. I mean, who wouldn't like that really? Uh, And they do fly to Trafalgar Square and they talk to Sirius the Dog Star. So that is a book that I might get down from the shelf. Wow, and you've really sold that to me. I, 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 I must confess, I feel terrible as a bookseller admitting this, but that's actually, I haven't heard of that Dodie Smith book. So it's lo- so lovely to be surprised because, you know, we, and no offence to the authors that have mentioned, you know, things like The Hobbit and things like that. But, you know, there's some books you come across quite a lot as that answer. Yes. But that one, that one's really taken me, you know, Oh, by surprise, which, oh good. which we do, like. Do search it out. It's it. I think yes. it is a little bit in the shadow of 101 Dimensions, and it, it's such a wonderful, magical book. And and the, the idea of sort of waking up and being able to fly and to whoosh around is is just incredible. And and it does include the Prime Minister's dog, which I think is quite fun. Oh wow! You make it sound almost uh, psychedelic with the uh, you know talking to the star <laughs> and everything. I'm like, oh wow! There's there's so much going on. It's one of those books. I think that's the wonderful thing about children's books, isn't it? Really good children's books because they totally sell you that that universe and that place and Mm. actually when you start to describe it you think this does feel you know i I wouldn't say this to a child you know does feel quite trippy doesn't it yes (laughs) Uh, Yes. but i can't think of sirius the dog star without thinking of that book and it's 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 and the dog days of of august so it Mm. really is is worth reading and that's always a good sign of a book that's uh, stayed with you, particularly a childhood book is when, you know, even in your adult life, you're kind of, you know, it, it becomes part of the kind of the makeup of how you see the world. You know, when you see that star, you always think of that. It's so true. In fact, the little bit that I'm going to read from my own book later on, I realised that also references another favourite book, The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Oh. Lewis. And, and that has really stayed with me. So that's so true. Children, it, What a wonderful thing to write a children's book and, and hope that it stays with people all their lives. You catch them so mm-hmm. early that it stays with them all those years. And when were you? Um, when you first came across the Starlight Barking, how old were you? What was the, what was the situation? I'm trying to think. 
think, I think I was probably sort of about 10 or, or maybe 11. Uh, my mum read me and my sisters, The 101 Dalmatians, and my mum was a great read. She really read well. Her dad was an actor and she was a great, she had a beautiful voice and she read really well. So I, I remember that and I remember that wonderful bit about coming home for, for, for Christmas. And, and I read it to my kids. My daughter got very worried they wouldn't be home for Christmas. But I know yeah. that I read Starlight Barking on my own. So I think I was that little bit older. Mm. Um, and so, so maybe I was sort of 11 or 12, but it definitely had stayed with me. As a child, were you a voracious reader? What was your relationship like with books? I really was. I mean, I guess a lot of your guests say this, but I really was. I, I read all the time. Um, I remember sort of sitting under the table reading Alice in Wonderland when I was really quite young, sort of about five or six, and just thinking, amongst other things, because that's a book that stayed with me forever, you know, you can spend the whole day reading. Mm. What a wonderful thing this is. And obviously I must have been, I was in a house that, that appreciated you could spend the whole day reading. Mm. And I wrote my first crime novel when I was 11 and it was called The Hair of the Dog, which must have been a phrase my parents used. I don't know yeah. if I understood the implications of it. You know, that you have a drink the night before you should have another drink the next day. I think that's the, the, the essence of that phrase. But um, yeah. it was a crime novel. It was set in the village nearby, wherever I still live, Rottingdean in East Sussex. And it was a very Agatha Christie's book. So I think that was when I started reading Agatha Christie and uh, also thought that I might try and be a writer. So, yeah, so you can trace it back all that way. Wow. Yeah, I'd love to see that 11-year-old uh, crime novel. And what, what was the crime in question? Do you remember? Was yeah. it a... Uh... It wasn't a bad setup, though I say so myself, Jack. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was a little village where nothing much happened, which obviously was very much on my mind because it was where yeah. I lived, really. Um, and a group of young people decide to stage a fake murder to bring the media down, which, of course, in the 70s, this would have been, would, would have just been the print media, but would bring the media to the village. But, of course, the fake murder turns into a real murder and they've got more than they bargained for, which I don't think is a bad setup. Um, I would read that. <laughs> I would you. read that for sure. I That's... think I should, I should try and rewrite it. I have still got the beginning of it. I can't find the end of it. Oh, and I have wow. slightly forgotten who did it, but uh, my mum kept the beginning of it. So I have still got the beginning of it. <laughs> Uh, that's amazing. And yeah, I think particularly, as you say, you know, print media then, but in our kind of, you know, very connected kind of uh, social media, everyone being aware of kind of, you know, the 15 minutes of fame. I think the idea of staging a murder in order to put your village on the map is, uh, you know, just as feasible now. Isn't it? And there is, you know, recent tragic events have shown people do are fascinated by murder and it's not just like these mm. sometimes in, in quite an unhealthy way, really. So mm. it is it is a rather dark way of putting a village on the map. And, you know, there are some places that will be ever linked to murder in, in our minds. Others. That's a kind of darker geography, really. But uh, I, I think it was something I, I'm quite interested in. And I guess I'm really still interested in place and, and the importance of place. So, yes, early stirrings of those ideas. Mm. Yes, because, of course, with the Dr. Ruth Galloway series, place is incredibly important to that. And the story seems very rooted in its location. So that's something always as a writer you've been sort of attracted to or drawn to. Definitely, definitely. I um, the, with, with the books, as you so rightly say, they start with the place, really. It's the place that comes first. And I got the whole idea from them walking across Titchwell Marsh and, and the North Norfolk coast. So that idea of marshland being neither land nor sea, but something in between. So a kind of bridge to the afterlife. That whole thing really was the first idea for the Ruth books. But yes, it's always been place. And I have always been interested in there's a little village near again where I still live that, that's a little spooky it's in a little dip 
and you can't get there by car. Um, and I, I always used to, my kids and I always used to walk there. We used to tell ghost stories on the way there. And I, I do remember writing short stories about that place when I was growing up, yes. So place has always been very important. And, and the idea that there is an atmosphere that sometimes a place does carry over the, mm. the years, over the centuries, maybe. Uh, absolutely yes it's amazing you can go i don't know certain environments uh, make you want to sort of tell stories or think of kind of you know certain types of stories you know i visited um dartmoor for the first time over the summer and you know something about those very old landscapes yes like you get you know in those sort of marshlands or all around the uk you know you feel absolutely ready to sort of set up a little fire if the law allows in that particular place for those listening um and you know sort of tell stories that it feels deeply human in places like that i feel it really does and i was in howarth actually a couple of weeks ago in yorkshire you know and and went to just arrived at sort of six o'clock i was doing a talk there and I went you know into the grounds of the parsonage where the Brontes lived and all the rooks were cawing from the trees and you do think oh wow it's no wonder really that these wonderful stories came from this place it's so atmospheric so absolutely there's some places just meant for storytelling aren't there yes yeah yeah it, 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 it makes you think that you know people should be sort of going out to these places and kind of soaking up the atmosphere if they feel they've got a book in them that's yes. where um, they, yes. they should be going to and sort of going back to children's books as an author who writes both for, for adults and you've done children's books as well do you find there's a different mindset for you is there do you sort of click into a different gear when doing children's books or is it just storytelling but you know by a different name do you know, it's not very different for me. And, you know, I love children's fiction. I used to work in, in children's publishing, actually, at HarperCollins. Mm. So uh, oh, okay. I, I really love children's fiction. But for me, I don't know what it says about me, that uh, my writing is, is really no different. I honestly think the only difference between the, the Ruth books and uh, the Justice books, uh, Justice is quite a lot shorter, really, um, because I, I'm not a writer who uses loads of bad language or mm. Um, mm. graphic violence. So I didn't have to edit myself in that way. I I guess there's no sex. I guess there's no sex in those books and there is sex in the Ruth books. But otherwise, I think Justice is basically a young Ruth and mm. they're just shorter Ruth books, really. Um, but one of the things that really is true, I think possibly because children's books are often shorter, though nowadays they, they've actually got very long, m- m- mm. very, very long compared to when I was editing them. But anyhow, uh, because you've got a shorter, um, f- fewer number of words, it's all plot, really. So it's all plot. And they're not, I wouldn't say fill it, that adult writers fill in with, with a bit of landscape and a bit of uh, <laughs> other things like that. But you know what I mean, that it's, it, everything is plot and children are really good at plotting. Mm. And when I do events in schools, I often read a little bit from the first chapter and I say, do you think there are any clues there? And they always get every one of them, however much you try to misdirect them and try and say, oh, look over there, look at that nice seagull. But they're saying, oh, actually, I'm, I'm really interested in what that said yeah <laughs> so you, you there's nowhere to hide i think so mm. as, as a crime writer they've been very interesting uh, and very good exercises in plotting and making sure that all the clues are there not too obvious away for a very eagle-eyed audience i have to say an eagle absolutely when they're listening. after doing that i can imagine the 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 grown-up books are you know you're like oh no this is easy yes, i know exactly. how, i know how 
I know how to wrong for adults. It's the children yes, that are. It's so, it's so true. They're so quick at catching uh, um, mm. just just little bits of dialogue. You know, quite quite often, you know, you you can lose a little clue in in dialogue, but they are quick to notice that. So yes, absolutely. It's it's a very good exercise, and also children's audiences are lovely because they ask all mm. sorts of great questions, and also they ask things like, "What's your favorite pudding?" So who wouldn't like that, really? Exactly, yeah. Those, those important questions. What important is your favourite pudding? Oh, I think it's tiramisu. I, I had to oh, think about that. Yeah, it's really homemade tiramisu, maybe. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, sticky toffee pudding for me. I'm oh, very, nice. I'm very, I'm very clear-eyed about that. I, that's, <laughs> yes, that's, that's very a, quick. You were. Too, yes, you very quick. That. Yeah, it's. Yeah. A, I'm always prepared to answer that question. But yes, that's something. Actually, speaking to other children's authors or authors who have also written for children on the podcast is um, uh, there's a real sense of energy and kind of excitement because it's kind of storytelling at its most uh, dynamic, really. Because as you say, they're the most discerning audience. I think adults, you know. I don't know, maybe after years of reading, they're kind of, we have ways of thinking as adults, don't we? Yes, so we can yes. be easier to wrong foot, whereas children's minds are kind of so open. It's a real test of skill, I think, children's publishing. And you, there is that freshness, you know, you, you think maybe uh, a deserted sort of country house is, is a bit of a cliche for adult readers, but the, the Justice books are set in, in a school in the middle of the Romney mm. Marshes. And you do get children say, oh, this is so exciting. They're cut off in this lonely house in the snow and a murder's happened and it could be anyone. And that isn't a cliche to them. It's exciting for them. Yes. So, mm. But that's wonderful. And like we were saying earlier, what, what a wonderful thing it, it must be to write a children's book that stays with someone all their life. Mm. That that's, feels such a privilege, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And yes, that must be um, interesting as an author, because I suppose there's no, I don't know, there's no, people can tell you in letters and things like that, but I suppose there's kind of no way of knowing of the, you know, lasting effects, because there's so many books that have had a lasting effect on me, but there's no way the author knows, because, you know, yes. I'm, I'm not necessarily going to sort of reach out to them and tell them, but... Yes, it's so interesting. I heard Anne Cleves talking a few years ago and she was saying, no, actually, also what I talked to her on my podcast and this came up again. She was a big mm. fan of the, the Malcolm Savile Lone Pine books and I was mm. too growing up and, and other books sort of set in, in Northumbria and things like that. And you can see that in, in the adult Anne's writing and, and you know, how, how wonderful it is that those books had such an effect on her. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And um, yeah, particularly for writers, you know, they talking to writers on the podcast, you really get a sense of that even writing years later that they're thinking of those kind of early very vivid reading experiences that had um, such an effect on them well obviously now sort of bringing us up to the future you're a, a celebrated and published author in terms of reading these days do you find um, is that something you have less time for uh, because you're focusing on your own work or are you still quite a reader as well I'm still a real reader. I think you kind of either are or you aren't, aren't you? And I, mm. I, I couldn't go on a train or, or a plane, certainly not a plane, without a book. Uh, I have to have a book with me. I'm always reading at home. I, 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 I'm afraid I take books in the bath, which I know is awful. My kids now won't lend me their books because of that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm not so good with, with looking after books. Um, but yeah, so I do read all the time. Yeah, I, I now get sent quite, well, I'm so lucky because I get sent quite quite a few books to read, but, but I'm always also buying them. Uh, you know, when I'm in a bookshop doing a signing, I nearly always come out with a book because because that's what you're like if you love mm. books and you look at something oh I'd like to read that well that looks really interesting yeah I'll pick that up so um yeah so I'm I'm still a, I'm still a reader maybe I read a bit slower when I was an editor I used to read very quickly because that was part of my job and I would 
commute from from Brighton to London and I would read a book each way. And I do remember thinking, this is terrible, really. But I used to worry that people on the train thought that I could. I I only read children's books because I was a children's book. (laughs) And I used to want to say to them, do you know, I can read adult books as well. Or to try and read them with that sort of editory expression, which obviously nobody was interested in and nobody was looking at. Um, But yes, so I used to read a book each way in those days. But I read a bit slower now, but I still do read all the time. Couldn't go to sleep without reading a bit before Mm. I went to bed. I'm sort of imagining you on that train sort of with the most serious pair of glasses you yes. could find, you know, tr- sort of yes. a slight frown on your face. Yes, thinking, exactly. you know, How do maybe, I show that I'm an editor? Yes. Maybe a pencil in hand. Yeah. Yeah, they probably just thought, oh, my goodness, poor girl, she can't even understand this book. She has to make notes on it. But And how long were you um, um, uh, in that role? How, how long um, was that a part of your life for? Well, I... Um, after university I went to work in a library for a bit but then I started off in publishing and I started as uh, editorial assistant I think and then I became editorial director at HarperCollins children's book so I was there about eight years um in, in that role yeah and I loved it oh who wouldn't love it but um and I I left really when I um when I had my kids I've got twins who are mm. 24 so it's quite a long time ago now but certainly it was it was a great job to have yeah, that must. Yeah, that must have been uh, fantastic, and to see that you know the kind of industry from all of its different sides, yes, you know, because of yes. course some writers, you know, might just know the writing side, but it's such a fascinating industry. It's kind of nice to see it from the different angles as well. It is, and sometimes writers get publishing quite wrong when they write about it. It's quite interesting, especially if they're super famous because they haven't seen the side of it of, of being, you know, not not uh, a, a front list author, not not a mm. not not a, a really celebrated author. So, um, yeah, and publishing has obviously changed a lot in those 25 years. You know, there's no, um, re- really is so much more self-publishing now. And of course, Amazon wasn't a thing there. So, so things things have changed a lot, but, but other things do remain the same, mm. I think. I think the love of a physical book, I think, has endured in a way that I think for, for a while people thought, you know, I, re- I remember people sort of being like, oh, once uh, Kindle came along, oh, you know, the real book um, will go. But as, of course, as with anything, as with sort of radio and TV, it's just part of the overall picture now. You know, it, 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 one hasn't trumped the other. Um, it's just, yeah. No, and it's quite wonderful, isn't it? How um, I think booksellers and, and, and publishers really, really up their game and they produce these very beautiful books. That, mm. that, and you see that on, mm. on things like BookTok now, uh, young people, she says something a thousand years old, but young people <laughs> really love hardback, beautiful mm. books yes. with, with lovely covers and, and sprayed edges and things like that. And they're beautiful things in themselves. And particularly as a reader of crime, because if you read crime fiction, you're a very active reader, aren't you? You're very involved mm. in it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that feeling you get when you've only got a few pages left, you don't get that from a Kindle, do you? No, no. And as I, you mentioned sort of treating books quite badly, <laughs> I, for me, a sort of a battered paperback is kind of, there's something quite pleasing about that because it sort of reflects how much you've enjoyed the book. Because I must confess, again, that maybe this will lose me my job, I don't know, but I turn the corners of pet books over in order to mark the page. Yes, you do well, as well. Is your, that your secret's safe with me. Obviously, I'm a podcast, so not safe. But, <laughs> but I do the same. But do you know something that I was thinking, and it might have been said by, by somebody else, but when you get one of those books that that, that you might have dropped in the bath, or, or <laughs> what it is, it's, it's fatter, isn't it? It's bigger than mm. when you've got a new book. So a new book is a slim thing. But when you've read it and read it many times, opened it up, put its spine open, dropped it in the bath. It's fatter and it's fatter because you've put more of yourself in it. That's what <gasps> I always think. 
Oh, goodness. That's I'm going to have to take a moment to digest that, I think. That's a very... I love that idea. Yes, it's so true. They physically change quite a bit, don't they? And a reader changes a book and every every decoding is another encoding. Every reading is is another encoding. So when sometimes people bring books to signings um, and they're very apologetic because they sort of haven't bought it there, they say, oh, this is my, you know, this is my old copy. And of course, I'm really happy to sign that because Mm. that really means something. Yes, because it's a a lot of you know the the more battered the book the the more it's been loved you know yes. it's it's been read several times it's been enjoyed passed around dropped in the bath potentially as well <laughs> it's all it's all it's all a good sign and um, I'll ask you now to recommend me a book that you've read recently that you've really connected with one that you would um, hand over to me well one that I've just finished is uh, the only suspect by Louise Candlish. Big Louise Candlish fan, she she wrote Our House. And this has a lot of the sort of classic Louise Candlish material in it. Mm. Uh, it's it starts off with it's, it's a couple in in a lovely suburban house. Always um, I always imagine her houses are so beautiful with kitchen islands and things. And they li- live in a, a suburb of London called Silver Grove. And they're happily married. They don't have children. They're trying to have children, but they can't have children. They're happily married. He's a nice husband. He's a bit insular. He doesn't talk to the neighbours. But he's a very good dog owner. He he seems. But when a nature trail opens up behind their house, he changes. And that's because he's really worried about what that nature trail will dig up. And and I really enjoyed this. I thought it was a, a great example of how much to hold back and how much to tell the reader. And it's a dual timeline. So it's partly in 90s London. I lived in London in the 90s, so I, I love that bit as well. And, and partly in the present day. So it's so I, I really enjoyed it. The, the Only Suspect by Louise Candlish. Yes, that sounds very... Um... Or the when you mention the nature trail, I don't yes. know. There's I got there's a little tingle there of oh goodness, yeah, that sounds, yeah, that and, sounds. And very... there are some lovely bits which which, which uh, are intentionally sort of slightly funny, where he sort of sees children digging up the path. Oh no, don't dig the path! You might upset, <laughs> the, you might upset the rare orchids. Obviously, thinking of something else. So yeah, it's it's very good. <laughs> Yes, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think for those who don't read crime and sort of thriller, that that may be as an area of reading that they haven't explored, is I think sometimes they imagine it to be quite humorless, you know, always very serious. And it sort of takes some convincing to say, actually, no, once once you read one, you'll realise there's usually quite a lot of humour there. There um, is, yes. You think of the Rebus is quite funny and the mm, Dialogue Pasco books are often very, very funny. And I was recommending a book the other day. Funny enough, I was, was doing a podcast with um, Jane Harper and we both recommended oh, the yes. same book, and <laughs> <laughs> which must put it, and it's everyone in my family has killed someone by Benjamin Stevenson. He's an Australian writer, actually. And it's so clever because it starts off with those 10... You remember those Ronald Knox's 10 rules of crime writing? Um, And he proceeds to break them all and he tells you when he's going to break them. He's like, on page 14, I break this rule. So it's very funny, but also it's a very clever crime novel. So, yes, I I love crime novels with a bit of humour in. Absolutely. And that sounds like if you're going to write a sort of crime novelist crime novel that sounds with the kind of breaking the rules that sounds you know I don't know I could all the crime novelists will be passing that around I think that's so clever what is so good about it is kind of meta in that way but Mm. actually it's also a very good crime novel so it's not Mm. just that joke it is and and they they, again they go off to a ski resort and they're snowed in and they're stuck there so got all those aspects as well so it's, it's very funny and do you find, um, as a novelist yourself, that that reading experience kind of can spur, you know, really sort of spur you on and energise you for your own writing as well? Definitely. 
definitely yes and I, I love reading um just generally I don't really read with with much of a crime reader's head on so I, I'm always mm. surprised by the twist I never catch it and you know when I'm watching a tv program I'm I'm not one of those people who I'm always just completely taken in by it oh wow they've got a different hat on they're a different person so, but yeah I, I'm <laughs> You know, like in opera, where people just cha- just change yes. them. You know, oh. the eye mask, and wow, Perhaps, I can't. Yeah. I didn't recognise you on my side. <laughs> I'm taken in by all that stuff. So, um, yeah, but I do find it energising, and also to read uh, non-fiction as well, and just generally, just I loved reading books. Yes, and that's quite nice as well to hear that. I don't know. I can imagine it would be quite easy to become very sort of oh yeah i know what's happening here yeah this is this it's going to be this it's going to be this which of course can ruin the the enjoyment i imagine it's nice that you're able to sort of just go along with it and enjoy and i don't always remember i also because i i've pretty much read most agatha christie for example and uh, Mm. i I wrote a miss marple story last year for the new miss marple collection oh yes yeah i reread all the miss marple so you know i'm quite knowledgeable on that yet again they appear on television and i and i feel like saying sort of oh yes i remember who did it or do i remember yeah taken in yet again (laughs) yes and of course i suppose with um marple is in that um brilliant sort of position as a character where you know it's at a point now where it's kind of being reimagined by the fans, you know, with with that collection last year or some of the TV adaptations might sort of slightly change the plot. But I think that's quite an exciting thing. I think it, it shows, again, a love of a particular character and the endurance of these kind of central characters that you find in these um, in these crime series people have such a love for them yeah they do and she's a very clever character actually because you never hear her speaking or Poirot speaking the first person and most of the books a lot of the Marple books are first person from a different person's point of view like Mona mm. the Vicarage is first person from from the vicar's point of view so she's actually an observed character you see her mm. through someone else's eyes and that actually makes her a very interesting character to write about it. and also it does mean that as you say that we can sort of reinvent her mm. in, in our own mind so she's a sort of shapeshifter really she's moving through the books in this very clever way I think and and of course we don't share her point of view because if we did we'd know all the answers because she knows all the answers so I do think that's very very cleverly done and it was interesting to go back to the books actually after watching uh, Joan Hickson obviously mm. marvellous Miss mm. Marvel and, and I, I love love sort of Geraldine McEwen as well but uh, Kate Moss who also had one of the books in the collection said that she had realised that Miss Marple's tall in the books which I hadn't picked up but isn't that interesting because oh, I, I don't yes. think that's our mental image of Miss Marple no no that's it that's interesting because that shows a kind of i don't know how our brains are wired that if you because i suppose people do in their minds think miss marple sort of little yes, little, little old, lady. old lady that phrase yeah of course yeah it also kind of makes sense that I, I can imagine this sort of uh slightly sort of well-bred taller woman who sort of you know she knows what she thinks and she's yes. got you know something to do so that makes sense as well yes but. she does it and i think I, I'm now wondering. I, I'm quite small, so a lot of people are talking to me. But I the Christie <laughs> feel, feels like she was quite a tall presence as well. So yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, as someone who's created characters that are so well loved, is that quite an exciting thing when you're out there, sort of meeting people at signings and things like that? Because of course, every reader will have their own relationship with someone like Ruth. So it, that must be a very sort of exciting and rewarding thing for you as a, a writer. It's. 
such a wonderful thing. It's such an amazing thing, isn't it? That people have that really close relationship with somebody you've created and, mm. and that their view of Ruth might not be yours, which is absolutely talking about the thing about putting something of yourself into the books again, isn't it? It doesn't matter if, if their Ruth is not my Ruth. And we often talk, people often ask, you know, uh, are they going to be on TV? <laughs> and I always say sort of rather uh, disgruntled, you know, they've been, been optioned five times for TV, but it's never happened. And I've recently on my podcast spoken to Anne Gleaves and Mick Heron about the experience of seeing their books become these amazing TV mm. adaptations. I've tried to keep the resentment out of my voice. You know, like, <laughs> what, what like, Mick? Tell me like to hang out with Gary Oldman. Um, <clears throat> Mick's great and his books are great. And so Gary Oldman's yes, really yeah. great as well. Yeah. Um, but actually, in some ways, that's quite nice because I could be talking mm. to a room of 100 people and each one has a different roof in their heads. And it might not be my Ruth, whereas I think if they were on TV, maybe they would all start to coalesce around the TV Ruth. And so actually, in some ways, it is quite nice because the, the, the pictures are better in our heads. We all know that as readers, don't we? I mean, that's oh, absolutely. why we read. The pictures are better in our heads. So actually, that is actually quite nice to think we all have that different view. And I was saying recently that I had a view of Nelson as looking a bit like Ted Hughes. Uh, okay, you know, right. And in his in his waders in a up to you know, in a freezing stream, looking quite grumpy. Um, and people say, "No, that's not my view at all." And that's quite good, isn't it? That we have such different views. Yes, yeah, from the same source material, yeah. and yet people's internal views. That and that's so true because I think for a long time, when people think of Praro, for instance, I will think of David Suchet yeah. in a, with a little mustache. And yet there would have been a time where everyone had their own. Yes. You know, their own Praro. So Ruth has got that wonderful freedom to kind of still be individually cast in, in each yes. reader's head. Having said that, if you're listening, Ruth Jones, you know, I think you'd be great. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. But um, it's always interesting speaking to authors who have, uh, you know, created a, a kind of a, a beloved character that has endured over several books because... Uh, I don't know. It's almost like they have a mutual friend with their yes, readers. Yes, it, that's you know, true. Yes, it creates such a particular, I think, author and readership dynamic in a way that's different to just kind of you know people who are fans of a particular author and the different books they've done. When there's that mutual character, I don't know. It feels sort of closer in some way. I don't, I don't know if that rings true from your from your yes. side of things. Absolutely. And I think that's a really nice way of putting it. You do have a mutual friend. And I, I in, in America, I met a lovely lady who had a, had a bracelet on that said, what would Ruth do? And I did <gasps> think, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? What yes. <clears throat> but I mean, that was so nice that in moments where she was actually a, a principal of a school, were moments of, of sort of worry, she thought, well, what would Ruth do? And I felt in some ways I thought, I don't know what Ruth would do. Um, but I thought it was wonderful that, that this uh, a fictional character might help her with her everyday decision making i thought that was great mm, that is yeah that's that, that's really that's yeah that's really uh, uh playing an important role in um yes. in their lives <laughs> and and as an author you know do you find even with when you're writing the last remains do you find that ruth still surprises you because as you say there you were like I, I don't know what ruth would do you know even into the last pages were you finding that ruth yeah is surprising you in different ways yeah, even as I was writing those last pages, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to end it because mm. Ruth has kind of 
you know, ruined my plans a few times. You know, I've had I've had plans <laughs> for her at several points in the series, and I could yeah. have ended it at several points in the series. But Ruth just wouldn't do what what I had planned for her to do. Mm. So, yes, I know, I know it sounds it sounds a bit sort of pretentious. Oh, the characters make the decision, but sometimes they do, and sometimes I suppose mm. it's it's all to do with you as the author, of course. But I couldn't make myself write what I'd wanted to write earlier on. So mm. right to the end, Ruth was kind of resisting me. Uh, but I think we, we came to a conclusion that we're both happy with. Good. That's good. That's that's good. You've edited it on good terms. Which <laughs> yeah, exactly. is, uh, yeah, yeah. Is, uh, yeah, is very good. And yes, it's interesting, yeah, because I can see what you mean there, that it could sort of sound pretentious to sort of be like, oh, well, the characters are yes. their own person now. Yes. Um, but of course, I think it, it's interesting. There definitely does seem to be a sort of a, I, I don't know, not subconscious element, but, you know, there is room for surprise there. I, you know, it feels like speaking to different authors that they're not just bluffing when they say something like that, that, that it is based in truth. Now, one thing I have learned really is is if you think, oh, what if that happened? You should write that. I mean, even if it doesn't make the final draft, you should maybe go down that path because, as you say, maybe it's a subconscious suggesting something to you. But remember, I think it was the third book, which is called The House at Sea's End, Cathbad, who's the druid character, did something which wasn't planned at all. And I remember when I was writing it thinking, well, should I just not let him do that? Mm. And then I thought, well, maybe I should, you know, just go down that path with him. And it did change the direction of the series in a way, but I'm glad I did it. So I think sometimes there is a bit of a prompting from your subconscious saying, well, maybe you should just, maybe, yes. maybe you should just do that. And of course, if it went completely the way that you had planned, you know, you as the writer, you might sort of get bored of it after a while. That's you know, really having true. those surprises is probably important for you as well yeah I'm not I'm not a complete planner I do plan a little bit mm. uh, but but I do like to be surprised and I think that has kept kept it fresh for me and and now I think from about sort of five books ago Stranger Diaries my first standalone uh, I didn't write down anything I had a plot sort of in my head but I didn't write it down and that allowed me to be a bit more fluid and to change things and to be a bit more labyrinthine. So I've kept that. I've kept that sort of element of things being fluid and able to suppress. So I think that has kept things fresh for me, you know, in my head. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I can imagine if you even if you'd written down sort of bullet points, they can sort of stare at you from the page yes. going, well, you said you'd do this. Why are you not doing that? <laughs> yes, and it can become a bit linear, can't it? This happens and then that happens and then that happens. But actually, it's, it's quite nice to mix things up a little bit. Mm. And in terms of your life now, do you have a, a particular space for writing? Do you, um, because you're, you said you're down Sussex Way, did yeah. you say? That's where you're based these days, yeah. I, I live just outside Brighton, yes. Yeah, so I'm speaking to you from my writing shed, which is oh, in, in my back garden, which I've always wanted a writing shed. And I had it yes. about sort of five years ago. Um, and my husband always says you shouldn't call it a shed because it's nicer than that. But it sounds very Margot Ledbetter for the older listeners uh, <laughs> to say my writing studio or my gazebo. Because yeah. <laughs> it is basically a shed. But it's at the top of the garden. It's got a desk and a chair and another chair for my cat and some, some bookshelves. Um, and I can see the sea out of the window and see oh. the garden. So it's a very, it's for me, it's been great to have a different place to go to write. You know, mm. just, just even if it's just... To the top of the garden, which is where I am now. Yes, yeah, yeah a separate mental space. Yeah, I think, yes, is you leave probably... the house, you go to the top of the garden, you enter into the to the little little writing space. So yes, that's where I'm writing. I'm, I'm talking to you at the moment, and you can see the sea. I'm can very envious sea, of that yes. in landlocked Abingdon in Oxfordshire. Oh, yes, well, yes. Right. well, there's <laughs> a lovely are... sea view from the house. From the that garden, it's just a tiny little sliver of sea, but right. it's still there. Oh, how lovely! Yes, it's um, very interesting seeing one of the as a admittedly nosy person 
doing these interviews the great thing is is uh, for the listeners out there we do have a video of each other ellie can see that i'm also currently in a shed which is the uh the shop office which is um built in our little courtyard so we're both talking from various different sheds and you've got um, one of those lovely stable doors behind you we do, like those we do although it is a slight pain sometimes you slam it and then the other one um opens out oh. on you so you can i've been sort of um buffed in the face sometimes oh, by, uh, tried to close the door but yes as a nosy person i've got to see sort of different writers uh spaces and um uh yes a, a, a one that sticks out to me was a um a writing barge on a river yes which i was like oh that's very snazzy wow that's very wow yes. that's yeah. really lovely so i remember talking to mary paulson ellis and almost not being able to concentrate on the conversation because her room was such a lovely blue. And I kept saying, oh. <laughs> your walls are so lovely, Mary. And she, she's great, but she was probably wanted to talk a bit more about books than yeah. how lovely her walls were. <laughs> You're like, what's the Pantone colour yeah, of that I did ask. wall? It's... <laughs> I did ask. Yeah. It's, impo- it's an important, it's an important it question. And one thing I wanted to ask earlier, actually, is, of course, you mentioned that, you know, you wrote that first book when you were 11, that first story, and then you were working in publishing for a while. Was that desire to write, was that consistent or did it sort of for a while kind of disappear? And then when was it that you were like, no, actually, I'm going to sit down and and really give this a, a go? That's a really good question, because, yes, I always wanted to write really all through school. I read English at university, still, still wrote the odd thing, nothing ever published but really keen mm. and then when I went to work in publishing it did go a little bit mm. because I suppose you're, you're involved in the in the world in the writing world from a different point of view and you're, you're editing and that's a different skill uh, so it really wasn't till I was on maternity leave and I think I was saying earlier I've got twins who are 24 so it was 25 years ago and I was on maternity leave and that that gave me a little time mm. not that much time yeah. to, away from the office and uh, I thought Actually, what what I really want to do is write a book and not necessarily edit it, but write a book. So I started a book then and it wasn't published till the twins were about four, wasn't finished till they were about four, but it was my first published book and it was written under my real name, which is Domenica de Rosa, which I know mm. sounds made up, but is in fact my real name. And it was called The Italian Quarter and it was sort of based on my dad's life as an Italian immigrant in, in London before the war so that was my first published book and I might never have written it if I hadn't been on maternity leave I think yes yeah uh, that seems to be a common thing with writers is that kind of moment where they realized it's sort of now or never yes. and then once they do it the first time it feels like everything feels like it's more manageable and it to, does to do. take a bit of time right is one of the few things where you can be a, a new young writer at 40 can't you? <laughs> a young thing <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, writing is I, I don't know, it's such a a measured thing. Yes. Is that is the nice thing is, is unlike other industry. I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but in music or something, there tends to be a certain sort of age bracket of where people will sort of become known. But actually writing is, you know, people can be writing from, you know, sort of 19 or having their first book coming out, you know, much later, which I, I think is one of the kind of more exciting things about it, because yeah. there's more voices there. And you don't get many writing prodigies, do you? Of course, you do get some, but you yes. don't get like, you know, you have these wonderful music prodigies at, at sort of 12 or something. But mm. most people, I mean, clearly I was one with my lovely 11 year old, uh, you know, 11 year old book. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I wasn't. This is the whole point of it. You know, I wasn't anywhere near publishable at that age. But mm. actually, for most people, it takes quite a long time and quite a lot of life experience, doesn't it, mm. to, to write a book? 
Absolutely, yes, because I think the moment you're sort of giving life to people, you know, different characters, you can't have the characters sort of being all the same age unless you're doing a kind of Lord of the Flies sort of scenario where, you know, no, for some reason, yeah. That's true. Another children's book I loved was Swish of the Curtain by Pamela Brown. I mm. think she wrote that when she was 15. And it's really quite extraordinary to think oh, she did. Wow, but that's, it, yeah. it is quite rare, I think. Yes. We don't want too many of those because um, it makes everyone else feel bad. So no, exactly. I think it's good. They're stop- it's good that you could be a young thing for quite a long time. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes, and um, as you said about the name, I imagine you get that quite a lot, that Eddie Griffiths sounds like the sort of the real name, as it were, and then um, your real name sounds like the pseudonym. Yes. Um, that must be something that gets quite frustrating because you're like, no, this is, this is a part of who I am. This it is, is my name. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah. Because, yes, if you if you hear, see Domenica de Rosa and Ellie Griffiths, you do assume that the Domenica de Rosa one is made up, but it's, is in fact my real name. My, my, my family are Italian. It means Sunday of the Rose, which is rather lovely. Oh, lovely. And mm. actually, I think having a name like that was one of the things that made me want to be a writer because I did imagine it on book covers and thought it sounded very writery and I, I still think mm. it does but the thing was that my first four books as Domenica de Rosa were kind of romances kind of women's fiction maybe you might say and so when I wrote a crime novel my, my then agent said oh you need a crime name and um I picked Ellie Griffiths because my grandmother had been Ellen Griffiths and I thought oh, it sounded okay. quite crimey and I thought mm. she quite like her name on a book but I didn't spend a huge amount of time thinking about it and also thought that Maybe if, if I was lucky enough to be published again, it would be as Domenica de Rosa. So I would not have assumed uh, there would yes. be now, I think, 28 Ellie Griffiths books. So mm. I would never have assumed to be her for so long. Yes. You're like, who's this Ellie Griffiths person? Yes. She's doing so well. But yes, it's um, <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? The um, the whole thing that, you know, if you've, if you've started in one area, if you make a change, which, of course, I think many authors want to do, there's this expectation, well, oh, well, you know, that name is now associated with this, so you need a kind of new name. But is that quite freeing for you? It, that first initial writing under a different name, did it sort of make you feel like, oh, I can, you know, I can leave sort of Dominica behind and uh, and try something else? little bit yes I think a little bit and it, and it is quite helpful isn't it to think of yourself in a different persona when you're writing but certainly when you're publicizing books so yeah that, that did help a little bit and uh, names are important aren't they I've changed a character's name in a book and found that they seem a totally different person so uh, I, I do think maybe it did help it did help to embrace a new genre under a new name really There's, sometimes I just wish I'd, I'd stayed with Domenica de Rosa because you know very proud of being Italian and, and mm, I've sort of, of lost course, that yeah. with Ellie Griffiths. But it is a family name, at least, was my grandmother's name. And she was yeah. Welsh and I'm proud of that too. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad I've got a family name. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And going back into the bookshop for a moment as well, and I'll, I'll ask you to recommend another book, is a sort of an all-time favourite book, a book that maybe you've gone back to several times or even if you've only read once, sort of really kind of looms large in your imagination. Uh, what book would you be putting off the shelf and handing over? I would be pulling off the shelf and really being quite insistent that somebody reads uh, Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons. Uh, absolute all-time favourite of mine. A nice slim volume would easily fit into your bag. Uh, mm-hmm. Perfect to read on a flight, uh, but just a tremendous book from beginning to end. And it's really what happens when... Uh, a rational woman comes face to face with gothic melodrama because Come Comfort <laughs> Farm and all the characters in it, it's, it's about a woman called Flora Post who, who is orphaned and goes to live with her family. She goes to live with Aunt Ada Doom who lives in Cold Comfort Farm in Howling in Sussex. 
And really everyone in Cold Comfort Farm, which is this monstrous, dark, brooding building, are characters from a gothic melodrama <laughs> or a crime novel. And they're all set to do sort of terrible things. And Aunt Ada saw something nasty in the woodshed. And there's a sort of religious maniac who belongs to the Church of the Quivering Brethren. But because Flora is so rational and sensible, she just sorts them all out. She, she opens the windows, she washes the curtain, she lets the bull out in the field. And eventually she sends the religious maniac off on a tour of America. She sends the local sex pest off to Hollywood. She gets Aunt Ada out of her attic and she just restores order. So I would recommend anyone. It's written in the 1930s. It's as fresh mm. today as it was then. So Cold Comfort Farm, if you haven't read it. Oh, my partner's going to be very annoyed because he loves that book oh. and he read it a year or so ago and has just been raving about it since and keeps trying to get me to read it. But now I think I'm going to have to say, yes, I will read it now, but because Eddie Griffiths recommended it yeah. on the podcast. <laughs> you have that, to well, I've been to talking him. about this for months. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> Well, clearly got very good taste. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yes, that's something that you both sort of align to is that freshness that is still there, despite, you know, despite it having been written in the 30s. It's just extraordinary, but we're in the 30s and set in sort of vague future as well, where they mm. have such amazing things as tele televisions, telephones where you can see people's faces, which is quite incredible that she, that she saw into the future, really. So it's sort of set in a vague future time, but it is just so fresh. And one of the things I love is that she puts asterisks beside, she says, I'm going to put asterisks beside the best writing. Um, and then she says, so you could skip those bits. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yes, yeah, so you could just get... <laughs> Skip to the good parts. Yes, quite... so when I'm writing, I always think to myself, don't write a passage that you could put an asterisk beside that somebody could skip. So it's quite useful to have that in your head. I was just about to say, yeah, that's quite a, a good thing to think. Am I writing an asterisk passage right now to be moved on from? And uh, yes, of course, great humour in that book as well, from what you've said. It's just very funny. Uh, you really, you will laugh out loud. And there, there's so many bits that are just, there's a wonderful bit where Seth, who thinks he's a sort of the local womaniser, tries to to flirt with Flora and he has this long description of his sort of dark desires and how he likes mollocking off in the woods and he says to her I don't think you understand a word of what I said you little innocent and she says oh I'm afraid I wasn't listening to all of it and you just think that's so funny so clever Yes, it sounds like, well, I'll be definitely, um, yes, I'll be definitely it, um, taking that one as well. Yeah, you'd make a very good bookseller. You've, Thank um, you. Yeah, you've <laughs> I've enjoyed you've doing virtual bookselling. Yeah, yeah it's I'll be fun. a bit insistent. Follow, you can't follow people around saying, oh, you must read it. You must yes. read it. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah well, I mean, that's the thing about a physical bookshop. You really can just sort of shove books into people's hands. And, um, yeah, you know, yes. people are usually very open-minded. They'll accept and, you know, and try something new as well. And it must be lovely when they come back and, and tell you that they've enjoyed it. That must be really sad. Satisfying. Oh, it's hugely. That's the kind of the best part of the job is when people come back and then start racking your brains even more. Of course, the difficult thing sometimes is they come in and they say, well, I've read that now. So what next? And you think, oh, goodness, you know, suddenly you're finding yourself having to find their next best read which is a uh, quite a pressure to have on you sometimes because you know you want to deliver um well we've talked about those books that have inspired you that you've enjoyed throughout your life and it's now time to turn that energy to um the last remains now i have to ask you to do something now which i, I do think is quite cruel of me but is to if you were in a bookshop scenario again and you were handing over that book to someone is um how would you describe it to them? What, what would you say about The Last Remains to this in this imaginary bookshop scenario? 
Well, I'd say it's it's the fifteenth book in the Doctor Ruth Galloway series, but you can read it if you if even if you haven't read any of the others. Uh, it's about a forensic archaeologist called Dr. Ruth Galloway. She's called in when bones are found behind the wall of, of a cafe in Kings Lynn, the town where she lives in Norfolk. She knows immediately that the bones are modern. And they're in fact, the remains of a Cambridge student who went missing 20 years ago. But Ruth's drawn into the case. It's a very personal one for her because it's a college where she used to teach. And because the dead girl was a good friend of Ruth's good friend, the Druid Cathbad. So it's a book full of decisions for Ruth. Um, not least about the case, but also about her job and about her relationship with DCI, Harry Nelson. And of course, with Ruth's particular sort of expertise, that must have been quite an interesting journey for you in terms of, I don't know, the research required there and the people that you've spoken to. I imagine that's brought you into contact with some really interesting real life characters in order to, you know, nail the part of those books down. Yeah, definitely. My husband's an archaeologist, which is pretty helpful, I have to say. Uh, yes. But he's also introduced me to lots of other archaeologists who've been super helpful, particularly a woman called Lindsay Harvey, who's a bones expert, and that's Ruth's expertise. So, yes, I mean, the wonderful thing archaeologists can tell you, like they can read the landscape. Something that I heard once, it's always stuck with me, is that if you see nettles in a landscape, it could be a dead body because nettles only grow where there's human remains. It could just be because someone's gone in the garden and had a wee, but it could be there's a dead body there. So just look at the nettles in your garden and it could be a dead body. So it's so interesting, all the things that I've learnt. I'm by no means an expert, but I think sometimes it helps not to be an expert, but just to be no. endlessly fascinated by the bits that you pick up along the way absolutely and i'm never going to do a nature walk again <laughs> with the same view every oh, time i yes, see nettles i'll be um and also when sometimes when you see see fields from, from um aerial views so interesting isn't it because you can see where there might have been houses and there might have been things mm. there before so yeah, i must admit going on a walk with an archaeologist as i often do is a is a very <laughs> is a is a very interesting thing to do Yes, absolutely. Sort of unlocking the secrets of the uh, the landscape. And of course, the nice thing is, is that for some people, this will be the end of the road, at least for now, of their relationship with Ruth. But of course, some people, you know, out there may actually only be discovering Ruth for the first time. And that's the wonderful thing with these characters, you know, that sense that there's no time limit on them. I don't know. It's very different to a TV series, maybe. Yes, you can pick up a DVD, but it's not quite the same thing. That's so true, because yes, there are 15 books in the series so if you haven't read them you can start a book one and you've got 15 books to go but also mm. you, I don't know about you but I'm, I'm a big rereader so you mm. can always go back to the beginning Absolutely. and reread them and they'll always be there and the story will always be there so I think that's one of the wonderful things about books you can always just go back to the beginning absolutely yes yeah and there's always there's always things that you didn't notice that first time you can have a set idea of a character by by the end of a series but actually going back you you can sort of rediscover things about them that maybe you've forgotten on on the way yeah, and particularly with a crime novel, don't you think? Because sometimes mm. when you're reading a crime novel, you read it very quickly to find out who did it. Um, and that's great. But then sometimes you can just read back and then, and then find other things in it, in the relationships and in the place. And so I quite often read, read crime novels very quickly the first time and then go back almost immediately and start to read again. And go into more depth. I'm so sorry, Ellie. I've just realised the time and um, I'm aware that that soon we'll unfortunately have to wrap up this wonderful conversation. But I could be talking all day oh, about books. That's the that's the only problem with this. I would ask you if you wouldn't mind to um, to give us a reading from The Last Remains, if, if you would. 
Okay, absolutely delighted to. Um, so I'm going to dive straight in, and this is the beginning of chapter 13. Oh, okay, uh, and Ruth is visiting a Neolithic flint mine. I'm just going to read from the very beginning of it. Welcome to Grimes Graves, says the English Heritage sign, next to a less welcoming notice, saying that it is closed to visitors. Ruth, driving through the gates, can see nothing but a long road with trees on either side. She remembers the site being a huge field, though it's surrounded by Thetford Forest. But suddenly, the sky opens up and she's driving through a wide space of sun-bleached grass. It reminds her of the ghost fields, the abandoned air bases scattered throughout Norfolk, now mostly converted into farms, but retaining some of the vastness and menace of their original use. There's a small hut in the middle of the field, with two cars parked outside. Ruth has seen plenty of aerial photos of Grimes Graves, the eerie lunar landscape pockmarked with craters like the surface of a golf ball. At ground level, it's hard to see the undulations, but Ruth knows they're there. Over 400 of them, she seems to remember. Each depression marks a mine shaft, long since filled in. Ruth thinks of the wood between the worlds in The Magician's Nephew, a book she once read to Kate. Each pool in the wood led to a different world, but there are so many, and they're all the same. It's possible to get lost in the in-between place forever. Ruth had found the concept terrifying at the time. Kate had found it funny. Two men are sitting at a picnic table outside the building, which looks less like an exhibition centre and more like the shed Phil has recently installed in his garden for his writing. Ruth recognised Leo Ballard by his wild grey hair. He waves as they, she approaches. Well met! Oh, God. Is she going to have to talk in Cod Shakespearean all morning? <laughs> just a little bit from... The last a fantastic reading. And imagine having a shed for writing. I know. I know. <laughs> what, what a pretentious thing to do. Who would do <laughs> How ridiculous. How ridiculous. Um, well, um, The Last Remains is now out. Uh, it's available in the Mostly Bookshop as well as on our website. But it will also be available from your local independent bookshop or from wherever you decide to get your books. Ellie, thank you so much for joining us on Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Our absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mostly Books Meets is presented and produced by the bookselling team at Mostly Books, an award-winning bookshop located in Abingdon, Oxfordshire. All of the titles mentioned in this episode are available through our shop or your preferred local independent. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our previous guests, which include some of the most exciting voices in the world of books. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Happy reading.